Welcome back to Black Clock Audio Tales. This is your host, D.B. Spitzer. We are in week two of the collected works of Poe, Edgar Allan Poe. And uh, yeah, so we're going to have that going on. And here's the thing. It's all going to drop on Tuesday. All of it. Black Clock Audio Tales drops on Tuesday. It's going to be a week worth of stuff, but it's all going to drop on Tuesday. And I'll step it out on Tuesday. So your podcast player will know what order to play it in instead of trying to play it all at once. So yeah, this is going to be interesting. Going to see how this works. And let us know if you like it, if you hate it, if you want us to switch any other way, if you want us to do things any other way. And yeah, this is going to be the intro for all week. So thank you so much for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos Black Clock Audio Tales. Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans Holiday Special and Zero Episode Articulate Warbling. Gonna try and come up with some other stuff. Maybe, I don't know, maybe maybe you have an idea and you want to contact pgttcm.com and contact us there. Or you want to contact us on Facebook at pgttcm.com or Black Clock Audio Tales or... We're on, on Facebook, we're People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos Black Clock Audio Tales. And you can always contact Zach from Articulate Warbling by checking out Articulate Warbling. And Dave's got something for Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans, but I can't remember the thing for it right now. But hey, uh, I'll let you know once we get closer to episode one coming out on that. As always, this episode is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com and FoundItemClothing.com. Look cool with a vintage-looking t-shirt from your favorite cult film from the 80s and 90s. Maybe the 70s, too, hey. And what about those bunny slippers? Keeping your feet warm, keeping your feet dry. Well, I mean, don't go walking around in novelty slippers outside. You're going to get your feet wet. What? Stay inside. Stay warm. Watch some cult films. BunnySlippers.com and FoundItemClothing.com a sponsor of PGTTCM and Black Clock Audio Tales since, I don't know, 2017? Something like that. All right. On with the show, Edgar Allan Poe. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and PGTTCM.com. And, hey, keep the show going. Donate a buck or five to PayPal.com slash... No, PayPal.me slash PGTTCM or going to pgttcm.podbean.com and clicking the patron button and donating something. We'll figure out something in the future for, I don't know, donating more than a dollar, but if you donate a dollar, we'll say your name and contact me so I know that you did it because, I don't know, for some reason I'm not getting messages about that kind of stuff. And if you've donated money and I didn't say your name, Message me on Facebook, and I'll say your name, and be like, hey, this person donated money. Anyway, Ed Allan Poe, here we go. Recording, Recording by, by Nick, Nick Number. The Collected Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 2, Von Kempelen and His Discovery. After the very minute and elaborate paper by Arago, to say nothing of the summary in Silliman's journal, with the detailed statement just published by Lieutenant Maury, it will not be supposed, of course, that in offering a few hurried remarks in reference to von Kempelen's discovery, I have any design to look at the subject in a scientific point of view. 
My object is simply, in the first place, to say a few words of von Kempelen himself, with whom, some years ago, I had the honor of a slight personal acquaintance, since everything which concerns him must necessarily at this moment be of interest, and, in the second place, to look in a general way, and speculatively, at the results of the discovery. It may be as well, however, to premise the cursory observations which I have to offer by denying very decidedly what seems to be a general impression, gleaned as usual in a case of this kind from the newspapers, viz. that this discovery, astounding as it unquestionably is, is unanticipated. By reference to the diary of Sir Humphrey Davy, Cottle and Monroe, London, page 150, it will be seen at pages 53 and 82 that this illustrious chemist had not only conceived the idea now in question, but had actually made no inconsiderable progress experimentally in the very identical analysis now so triumphantly brought to an issue by von Kempelen who, although he makes not the slightest allusion to it, is, without doubt, I say it unhesitatingly and can prove it if required, indebted to the diary for at least the first hint of his own undertaking. The paragraph from the Courier and Inquirer, which is now going the rounds of the press, and which purports to claim the invention from Mr. Kissam of Brunswick, Maine, appears to me, I confess, a little apocryphal for several reasons, although there is nothing either impossible or very improbable in the statement made. I need not go into details. My opinion of the paragraph is founded principally upon its manner. It does not look true. Persons who are narrating facts are seldom so particular as Mr. Kissam seems to be about day and date and precise location. Besides, if Mr. Kissam actually did come upon the discovery he says he did at the period designated nearly eight years ago, how happens it that he took no steps on the instant to reap the immense benefits which the merest bumpkin must have known would have resulted to him individually, if not to the world at large, from the discovery? It seems to me quite incredible that any man of common understanding could have discovered what Mr. Kissam said he did, and yet have subsequently acted so like a baby, so like an owl, as Mr. Kissam admits that he did. By the way, who is Mr. Kissam? And is not the whole paragraph in the Courier and Inquirer a fabrication got up to make a talk? It must be confessed that it is an amazingly moon-hoaxy air. Very little dependence is to be placed upon it, in my humble opinion, and if I were not well aware from experience how easily men of science are mystified on points out of their usual range of inquiry, I should be profoundly astonished at finding so eminent a chemist as Professor Draper discussing Mr. Kissam's, or is it Mr. Quizam's, pretensions to the discovery in so serious a tone. But to return to the diary of Sir Humphrey Davy, this pamphlet was not designed for the public eye, even upon the decease of the writer, as any person at all conversant with authorship may satisfy himself at once by the slightest inspection of the style. At page 13, for example, near the middle, we read, in reference to his researches about the protoxide of azote, in less than half a minute, the respiration being continued, diminished gradually and were succeeded by analogous to gentle pressure on all the muscles. That the respiration was not diminished is not only clear by the subsequent context, but by the use of the plural were. The sentence, no doubt, was thus intended. In less than half a minute, the respiration, being continued, these feelings, diminished gradually and were succeeded by a sensation, analogous to gentle pressure on all the muscles. A hundred similar instances go to show that the manuscript so inconsiderately published was merely a rough notebook, meant only for the writer's own eye, but an inspection of the pamphlet will convince almost any thinking person of the truth of my suggestion. The fact is, Sir Humphrey Davy was about the last man in the world to commit himself on scientific topics. Not only had he a more than ordinary dislike to quackery, but he was morbidly afraid of appearing empirical, so that, however fully he might have been convinced that he was on the right track in the matter now in question, he would never have spoken out until he had everything ready for the most practical demonstration.
I verily believe that his last moments would have been rendered wretched, could he have suspected that his wishes in regard to burning this diary, full of crude speculations, would have been unattended to, as it seems they were. I say his wishes, for that he meant to include this notebook among the miscellaneous papers directed to be burnt, I think there can be no manner of doubt. Whether it escaped the flames by good fortune or by bad yet remains to be seen. That the passages quoted above, with the other similar ones referred to, gave von Kempelen the hint I do not in the slightest degree question. But I repeat, it yet remains to be seen whether this momentous discovery itself, momentous under any circumstances, will be of service or disservice to mankind at large. That von Kempelen and his immediate friends will reap a rich harvest, it would be folly to doubt for a moment. They will scarcely be so weak as not to realize, in time, by large purchases of houses and land, with other property of intrinsic value. In the brief account of von Kempelen, which appeared in the Home Journal and has since been extensively copied, several misapprehensions of the German original seem to have been made by the translator, who professes to have taken the passage from a late number of the Pressburg Schnellpost. Vila has evidently been misconceived, as it often is, and what the translator renders by sorrows is probably leaden, which, in its true version, sufferings, would give a totally different complexion to the whole account. But, of course, much of this is merely guess on my part. Von Kempelen, however, is by no means a misanthrope, in appearance at least, whatever he may be in fact. My acquaintance with him was casual altogether, and I am scarcely warranted in saying that I know him at all, but to have seen and conversed with a man of so prodigious a notoriety as he has attained, or will attain in a few days, is not a small matter as times go. The literary world speaks of him confidently as a native of Pressburg, misled perhaps by the account in the Home Journal, but I am pleased in being able to state positively, since I have it from his own lips, that he was born in Utica, in the state of New York, although both his parents, I believe, are of Pressburg descent. The family is connected in some way with Melzel of automaton chess player memory. In person he is short and stout, with large, fat, blue eyes, sandy hair and whiskers, a wide but pleasing mouth, fine teeth, and I think a Roman nose. There is some defect in one of his feet. His address is frank, and his whole manner noticeable for bonhomie. Altogether he looks, speaks, and acts as little like a misanthrope as any man I ever saw. We were fellow sojourners for a week about six years ago at Earl's Hotel in Providence, Rhode Island, and I presume that I conversed with him at various times for some three or four hours altogether. His principal topics were those of the day, and nothing that fell from him led me to suspect his scientific attainments. He left the hotel before me, intending to go to New York, and thence to Bremen. It was in the latter city that his great discovery was first made public, or rather, it was there that he was first suspected of having made it. This is about all that I personally know of the now immortal von Kempelen, but I have thought that even these few details would have interest for the public. There can be little question that most of the marvelous rumors afloat about this affair are pure inventions, entitled to about as much credit as the story of Aladdin's lamp. And yet, in a case of this kind, as in the case of the discoveries in California, it is clear that the truth may be stranger than fiction. The following anecdote, at least, is so well authenticated that we may receive it implicitly. Von Kempelen had never been even tolerably well off during his residence at Bremen, and often, it was well known, he had been put to extreme shifts in order to raise trifling sums. When the great excitement occurred about the forgery on the house of Gutsmith and Company, suspicion was directed toward Von Kempelen, on account of his having purchased a considerable property in Gasperich Lane, and his refusing, when questioned, to explain how he became possessed of the purchase money. He was at length arrested, but nothing decisive appearing against him was in the end set at liberty. 
The police, however, kept a strict watch upon his movements and thus discovered that he left home frequently, taking always the same road and invariably giving his watchers a slip in the neighborhood of that labyrinth of narrow and crooked passages known by the flash name of the Dondergat. Finally, by dint of great perseverance, they traced him to a garret in an old house of seven stories in an alley called Flatsplatz, and, coming upon him suddenly, found him, as they imagined, in the midst of his counterfeiting operations. His agitation is represented as so excessive that the officers had not the slightest doubt of his guilt. After handcuffing him, they searched his room, or rather rooms, for it appears he occupied all the mansard. Opening into the garret where they caught him was a closet, ten feet by eight, fitted up with some chemical apparatus, of which the object has not yet been ascertained. In one corner of the closet was a very small furnace with a glowing fire in it, and on the fire a kind of duplicate crucible, two crucibles connected by a tube. One of these crucibles was nearly full of lead in a state of fusion, but not reaching up to the aperture of the tube, which was close to the brim. The other crucible had some liquid in it, which, as the officers entered, seemed to be furiously dissipating in vapor. They relate that, on finding himself taken, Kemplin seized the crucibles with both hands, which were encased in gloves that afterwards turned out to be asbetic, and threw the contents on the tiled floor. It was now that they handcuffed him, and before proceeding to ransack the premises, they searched his person, but nothing unusual was found about him, excepting a paper parcel in his coat pocket, containing what was afterward ascertained to be a mixture of antimony and some unknown substance, in nearly but not quite equal proportions. All attempts at analyzing the unknown substance have, so far, failed, but that it will ultimately be analyzed is not to be doubted. Passing out of the closet with their prisoner, the officers went through a sort of antechamber, in which nothing material was found, to the chemist's sleeping room. They here rummaged some drawers and boxes, but discovered only a few papers of no importance, and some good coins, silver and gold. At length, looking under the bed, they saw a large common hair trunk, without hinges, hasp, or lock, and with the top lying carelessly across the bottom portion. Upon attempting to draw this trunk out from under the bed, they found that, with their united strength, there were three of them, all powerful men, they could not stir it one inch. Much astonished at this, one of them crawled under the bed and, looking into the trunk, said, No wonder we couldn't move it. Why, it's full to the brim of old bits of brass. Putting his feet now against the wall so as to get a good purchase, and pushing with all his force while his companions pulled with all theirs, the trunk, with much difficulty, was slid out from under the bed and its contents examined. The supposed brass with which it was filled was all in small, smooth pieces, varying from the size of a pea to that of a dollar, but the pieces were irregular in shape, although more or less flat-looking upon the whole. Very much as lead looks when thrown upon the ground in a molten state, and there suffered to grow cool. Now, not one of these officers for a moment suspected this metal to be anything but brass. The idea of its being gold never entered their brains, of course. How could such a wild fancy have entered it? and their astonishment may be well conceived when the next day it became known all over Bremen that the lot of brass which they had carted so contemptuously to the police office without putting themselves to the trouble of pocketing the smallest scrap was not only gold, real gold, but gold far finer than any employed in coinage gold. In fact, absolutely pure, virgin, without the slightest appreciable alloy. I need not go over the details of von Kempelen's confession as far as it went and release, for these are familiar to the public. That he is actually realized in spirit and in effect, if not to the letter, the old chimera of the philosopher's stone, no sane person is at liberty to doubt. 
The opinions of Arago are, of course, entitled to the greatest consideration, but he is by no means infallible, and what he says of bismuth in his report to the Academy must be taken cum grano salis. The simple truth is that up to this period all analysis has failed, and until von Kempelen chooses to let us have the key to his own published enigma, it is more than probable that the matter will remain for years in statu quo. All that is yet can fairly be said to be known is that pure gold can be made at will and very readily from lead in connection with certain other substances in kind and in proportions unknown. Speculation, of course, is busy as to the immediate and ultimate results of this discovery, a discovery which few thinking persons will hesitate in referring to an increased interest in the matter of gold generally by the late developments in California. And this reflection brings us inevitably to another, the exceeding inopportuneness of von Kempelen's analysis. If many were prevented from adventuring to California by the mere apprehension that gold would so materially diminish in value on account of its plentifulness in the mines there as to render the speculation of going so far in search of it a doubtful one, what impression will be wrought now upon the minds of those about to emigrate, and especially upon the minds of those actually in the mineral region, by the announcement of this astounding discovery of von Kempelen? A discovery which declares in so many words that beyond its intrinsic worth for manufacturing purposes, whatever that worth may be, gold now is, or at least soon will be, for it cannot be supposed that von Kempelen can long retain his secret, of no greater value than lead, and of far inferior value to silver. It is indeed exceedingly difficult to speculate prospectively upon the consequences of the discovery, but one thing may be positively maintained, that the announcement of the discovery six months ago would have had material influence in regard to the settlement of California. In Europe, as yet, the most noticeable results have been a rise of 200% in the price of lead and nearly 25% that of silver. End of Von Kempelen and his discovery. Recording by Nick Number. by Nick Number. The Collected Works of Edgar Allan Poe, Raven Edition, Volume 2. Mesmeric Revelation. Whatever doubt may still envelop the rationale of mesmerism, its startling facts are now almost universally admitted. Of these latter, those who doubt are your more doubters by profession, an unprofitable and disreputable tribe. There can be no more absolute waste of time than the attempt to prove, at the present day, that man, by mere exercise of will, can so impress his fellow as to cast him into an abnormal condition, of which the phenomena resemble very closely those of death, or at least resemble them more nearly than they do the phenomena of any other normal condition within our cognizance. That, while in this state, the person so impressed employs only with effort and then feebly the external organs of sense, yet perceives with keenly refined perception and through channels supposed unknown matters beyond the scope of the physical organs. That, moreover, his intellectual faculties are wonderfully exalted and invigorated, that his sympathies with the person so impressing him are profound, and finally that his susceptibility to the impression increases with its frequency while in the same proportion the peculiar phenomena elicited are more extended and more pronounced i say that these which are the laws of mesmerism and its general features it would be supererogation to demonstrate nor shall i inflict upon my readers so needless a demonstration today my purpose at present is a very different one indeed I am impelled, even in the teeth of a world of prejudice, to detail without comment the very remarkable substance of a colloquy occurring between a sleep-waker and myself. 
I had been long in the habit of mesmerizing the person in question, Mr. Vankirk, and the usual acute susceptibility and exaltation of the mesmeric perception had supervened. For many months he had been laboring under confirmed phthisis, the more distressing effects of which had been relieved by my manipulations, and on the night of Wednesday, the 15th instant, I was summoned to his bedside. The invalid was suffering with acute pain in the region of the heart, and breathed with great difficulty, having all the ordinary symptoms of asthma. In spasms such as these he had usually found relief from the application of mustard to the nervous centers, but tonight this had been attempted in vain. As I entered his room he greeted me with a cheerful smile, and although evidently in much bodily pain, appeared to be, mentally, quite at ease. I sent for you tonight, he said, not so much to administer to my bodily ailment as to satisfy me concerning certain psychal impressions which, of late, have occasioned me much anxiety and surprise. I need not tell you how skeptical I have hitherto been on the topic of the soul's immortality. I cannot deny that there has always existed, as if in that very soul which I have been denying, a vague half-sentiment of its own existence, but this half-sentiment at no time amounted to conviction. With it my reason had nothing to do. All attempts at logical inquiry resulted, indeed, in leaving me more skeptical than before. I had been advised to study Cousin. I studied him in his own works, as well as in those of his European and American echoes. The Charles Elwood of Mr. Brownson, for example, was placed in my hands. I read it with profound attention. Throughout, I found it logical, but the portions which were not merely logical were unhappily the initial arguments of the disbelieving hero of the book. In his summing up, it seemed evident to me that the reasoner had not even succeeded in convincing himself. His end had plainly forgotten his beginning, like the government of Trinculo. In short, I was not long in perceiving that if man is to be intellectually convinced of his own immortality, he will never be so convinced by the mere abstractions which have been so long the fashion of the moralists of England, of France, and of Germany. Abstractions may amuse and exercise, but take no hold on the mind. Here upon earth, at least, philosophy, I am persuaded, will always in vain call upon us to look upon qualities as things. The will may assent, the soul, the intellect, never. I repeat, then, that I only half felt and never intellectually believed, but latterly there has been a certain deepening of the feeling until it has come so nearly to resemble the acquiescence of reason that I find it difficult to distinguish between the two. I am enabled, too, plainly to trace this effect to the mesmeric influence. I cannot better explain my meaning than by the hypothesis that the mesmeric exaltation enables me to perceive a train of ratiocination which, in my abnormal existence, convinces, but which, in full accordance with the mesmeric phenomena, does not extend, except through its effect, into my normal condition. In sleep-waking, the reasoning and its conclusion, the cause and its effect, are present together. In my natural state, the cause vanishing, the effect only, and perhaps only partially, remains. These considerations have led me to think that some good results might ensue from a series of well-directed questions propounded to me while mesmerized. You have often observed the profound self-cognizance evinced by the sleep-waker, the extensive knowledge he displays upon all points relating to the mesmeric condition itself, and from the self-cognizance may be deduced hints for the proper conduct of a catechism. I consented, of course, to make this experiment. A few passes threw Mr. Vankirk into the mesmeric sleep. His breathing became immediately more easy, and he seemed to suffer no physical uneasiness. The following conversation then ensued, V in the dialogue representing the patient, and P myself. P. Are you asleep? V. Yes. No, I would rather sleep more soundly. P. After a few more passes. 
Do you sleep now? V. Yes. P. How do you think your present illness will result? V. After a long hesitation and speaking as if with effort. I must die. P. Does the idea of death afflict you? V. Very quickly. No, no. P. Are you pleased with the prospect? V. If I were awake, I should like to die, but now it is no matter. The mesmeric condition is so near death as to content me. P. I wish you would explain yourself, Mr. Van Kirk. V. I am willing to do so, but it requires more effort than I feel able to make. You do not question me properly. P. What then shall I ask? V. You must begin at the beginning. P. The beginning? But where is the beginning? V. You know that the beginning is God. This was said in a low, fluctuating tone and with every sign of the most profound veneration. P. What then is God? V. Hesitating for many minutes. I cannot tell. P. Is not God spirit? V. While I was awake, I knew what you meant by spirit, but now it seems only a word. Such, for instance, as truth, beauty, a quality, I mean. P. Is not God immaterial? V. There is no immateriality. It is a mere word. That which is not matter is not at all, unless qualities are things. P. Is God then material? V. No. This reply startled me very much. P. What then is he? V. After a long pause and mutteringly. I see, but it is a thing difficult to tell. Another long pause. He is not spirit, for he exists, nor is he matter as you understand it. But there are gradations of matter of which man knows nothing. The grosser impelling the finer, the finer pervading the grosser. The atmosphere, for example, impels the electric principle, while the electric principle permeates the atmosphere. These gradations of matter increase in rarity or fineness until we arrive at a matter unparticled, without particles, indivisible, one, and here the law of impulsion and permeation is modified. The ultimate or unparticled matter not only permeates all things but impels all things and thus is all things within itself. This matter is God. What men attempt to embody in the word thought is this matter in motion. P. The metaphysicians maintain that all action is reducible to motion and thinking and that the latter is the origin of the former. V. Yes, and I now see the confusion of idea. Motion is the action of mind, not of thinking. The unparticled matter, or God, in quiescence is, as nearly as we can conceive it, what men call mind. And the power of self-movement, equivalent in effect to human volition, is, in the unparticled matter, the result of its unity and omniprevalence. How, I know not, and now clearly see that I shall never know. But the unparticled matter, set in motion by a law or quality existing within itself, is thinking. P. Can you give me no more precise idea of what you term the unparticled matter? V. The matters of which man is cognizant escape the senses in gradation. We have, for example, a metal, a piece of wood, a drop of water, the atmosphere, a gas, caloric, electricity, the luminiferous ether. Now we call all these things matter and embrace all matter in one general definition, but in spite of this there can be no two ideas more essentially distinct than that which we attach to a metal and that which we attach to the luminiferous ether. 
When we reach the latter, we feel an almost irresistible inclination to class it with spirit or with nihility. The only consideration which restrains us is our conception of its atomic constitution, and here even we have to seek aid from our notion of an atom as something possessing in infinite minuteness, solidity, palpability, weight. Destroy the idea of the atomic constitution and we should no longer be able to regard the ether as an entity, or at least as matter. For want of a better word we might term it spirit. Take now a step beyond the luminiferous ether. Conceive a matter is much more rare than the ether, as this ether is more rare than the metal, and we arrive at once, in spite of all the school dogmas, at a unique mass, an unparticled matter. For although we may admit infinite littleness in the atoms themselves, the infinitude of littleness in the spaces between them is an absurdity. There will be a point, there will be a degree of rarity at which, if the atoms are sufficiently numerous, the interspaces must vanish and the mass absolutely coalesce. But the consideration of the atomic constitution being now taken away, the nature of the mass inevitably glides into what we conceive of spirit. It is clear, however, that it is as fully matter as before. The truth is, it is impossible to conceive spirit, since it is impossible to imagine what is not. When we flatter ourselves that we have formed its conception, we have merely deceived our understanding by the consideration of infinitely rarefied matter. P. There seems to me an insurmountable objection to the idea of absolute coalescence, and that is the very slight resistance experienced by the heavenly bodies in their revolutions through space. A resistance now ascertained, it is true, to exist in some degree, but which is nevertheless so slight as to have been quite overlooked by the sagacity even of Newton. We know that the resistance of bodies is chiefly in proportion to their density. Absolute coalescence is absolute density. Where there are no interspaces, there can be no yielding. An ether, absolutely dense, would put an infinitely more effectual stop to the progress of a star than would an ether of adamant or of iron. V. Your objection is answered with an ease which is nearly in the ratio of its apparent unanswerability. As regards the progress of the star, it can make no difference whether the star passes through the ether or the ether through it. There is no astronomical error more unaccountable than that which reconciles the known retardation of the comets with the idea of their passage through an ether. For, however rare this ether be supposed, it would put a stop to all sidereal revolution in a very far briefer period than has been admitted by those astronomers who have endeavored to slur over a point which they found it impossible to comprehend. The retardation actually experienced is, on the other hand, about that which might be expected from the friction of the ether in the instantaneous passage through the orb. In the one case, the retarding force is momentary and complete within itself. In the other, it is endlessly accumulative. P. But in all this, in this identification of mere matter with God, is there nothing of irreverence? I was forced to repeat this question before the sleep-waker fully comprehended my meaning. V. Can you say why matter should be less reverenced than mind? But you forget that the matter of which I speak is, in all respects, the very mind or spirit of the schools so far as regards its high capacities, and is, moreover, the matter of these schools at the same time. God, with all the powers attributed to spirit, is but the perfection of matter. P. You assert, then, that the unparticled matter in motion is thought? V. In general, this motion is the universal thought of the universal mind. This thought creates. All created things are but the thoughts of God. P. You say, in general. V. Yes, the universal mind is God. For new individualities, matter is necessary. P. 
but you now speak of mind and matter as do the metaphysicians. V. Yes, to avoid confusion, when I say mind, I mean the unparticled or ultimate matter. By matter, I intend all else. P. You were saying that, for new individualities, matter is necessary. V. Yes, for mind, existing unincorporate, is merely God. To create individual thinking beings, it was necessary to incarnate portions of the divine mind. Thus man is individualized. Divested of corporate investiture, he were God. Now the particular motion of the incarnated portions of the unparticled matter is the thought of man, as the motion of the whole is that of God. P. You say that divested of the body, man will be God? V. After much hesitation. I could not have said this. It is an absurdity. P. Referring to my notes. You did say that divested of corporate investiture, man were God. V. And this is true. Man thus divested would be God, would be unindividualized. But he can never be thus divested, at least never will be, else we must imagine an action of God returning upon itself, a purposeless and futile action. Man is a creature. Creatures are thoughts of God. It is the nature of thought to be irrevocable. P. I do not comprehend. You say that man will never put off the body? V. I say that he will never be bodiless. P. Explain. V. There are two bodies, the rudimental and the complete, corresponding with the two conditions of the worm and the butterfly. What we call death is but the painful metamorphosis. Our present incarnation is progressive, preparatory, temporary. Our future is perfected, ultimate, immortal. The ultimate life is the full design. P. But of the worm's metamorphosis we are palpably cognizant. V. We, certainly, but not the worm. The matter of which our rudimental body is composed is within the can of the organs of that body, or, more distinctly, our rudimental organs are adapted to the matter of which is formed the rudimental body, but not to that of which the ultimate is composed. The ultimate body thus escapes our rudimental senses, and we perceive only the shell which falls, in decaying, from the inner form, not that inner form itself. But this inner form, as well as the shell, is appreciable by those who have already acquired the ultimate life. P. You have often said that the mesmeric state very nearly resembles death. How is this? V. When I say that it resembles death, I mean that it resembles the ultimate life. For when I am entranced, the senses of my rudimental life are in abeyance, and I perceive external things directly, without organs, through a medium which I shall employ in the ultimate, unorganized life. P. Unorganized? V. Yes, organs are contrivances by which the individual is brought into sensible relation with particular classes and forms of matter to the exclusion of other classes and forms. The organs of man are adapted to his rudimental condition, and to that only. His ultimate condition, being unorganized, is of unlimited comprehension in all points but one, the nature of the volition of God, that is to say, the motion of the unparticled matter. You will have a distinct idea of the ultimate body by conceiving it to be entire brain, this it is not, but a conception of this nature will bring you near a comprehension of what it is. A luminous body imparts vibration to the luminiferous ether. The vibrations generate similar ones within the retina. These again communicate similar ones to the optic nerve. The nerve conveys similar ones to the brain. The brain also similar ones to the unparticled matter which permeates it. The motion of this latter is thought, of which perception is the first undulation. 
This is the mode by which the mind of the rudimental life communicates with the external world, and this external world is, to the rudimental life, limited through the idiosyncrasy of its organs. But in the ultimate, unorganized life, the external world reaches the whole body, which is of a substance having affinity to brain, as I have said, with no other intervention than that of an infinitely rarer ether than even the luminiferous. And to this ether, in unison with it, the whole body vibrates, setting in motion the unparticled matter which permeates it. It is to the absence of idiosyncratic organs, therefore, that we must attribute the nearly unlimited perception of the ultimate life. To rudimental beings, organs are the cages necessary to confine them until fledged. P. You speak of rudimental beings. Are there other rudimental thinking beings than man? V. The multitudinous conglomeration of rare matter into nebulae, planets, suns, and other bodies which are neither nebulae, suns, nor planets is for the sole purpose of supplying pabulum for the idiosyncrasy of the organs of an infinity of rudimental beings. But for the necessity of the rudimental, prior to the ultimate life, there would have been no bodies such as these. Each of these is tenanted by a distinct variety of organic, rudimental, thinking creatures. In all, the organs vary with the features of the place tenanted. At death, or metamorphosis, these creatures, enjoying the ultimate life, immortality, and cognizant of all secrets but the one, act all things and pass everywhere by mere volition. Indwelling, not the stars, which to us seem the sole palpabilities, and for the accommodation of which we blindly deem space created, but that space itself, that infinity of which the truly substantive vastness swallows up the star shadows, blotting them out as non-entities from the perception of the angels. P. You say that, but for the necessity of the rudimental life, there would have been no stars. But why this necessity? V. In the inorganic life, as well as in the inorganic matter generally, there is nothing to impede the action of one simple, unique law, the divine volition. With the view of producing impediment, the organic life and matter, complex, substantial, and law-encumbered, were contrived. P. But again, why need this impediment have been produced? V. The result of law inviolate is perfection, right, negative happiness. The result of law violate is imperfection, wrong, positive pain. Through the impediments afforded by the number, complexity, and substantiality of the laws of organic life and matter, the violation of law is rendered, to a certain extent, practicable. Thus pain, which in the inorganic life is impossible, is possible in the organic. P. But to what good end is pain thus rendered possible? V. All things are either good or bad by comparison. A sufficient analysis will show that pleasure, in all cases, is but the contrast of pain. Positive pleasure is a mere idea. To be happy at any one point, we must have suffered at the same. Never to suffer would have been never to have been blessed. But it has been shown that, in the inorganic life, pain cannot be thus the necessity for the organic. The pain of the primitive life of earth is the sole basis of the bliss of the ultimate life in heaven. P. Still, there is one of your expressions which I find it impossible to comprehend, the truly substantive vastness of infinity. V. This probably is because you have no sufficiently generic conception of the term substance itself. We must not regard it as a quality, but as a sentiment. It is the perception in thinking beings of the adaptation of matter to their organization. There are many things on the earth which would be nihility to the inhabitants of Venus, many things visible and tangible in Venus which we could not be brought to appreciate as existing at all.
but to the inorganic beings, to the angels, the whole of the unparticled matter is substance. That is to say, the whole of what we term space is to them the truest substantiality. The stars, meantime, through what we consider their materiality, escaping the angelic sense, just in proportion as the unparticled matter, through what we consider its immateriality, eludes the organic. As the sleep-waker pronounced these latter words in a feeble tone, I observed on his countenance a singular expression, which somewhat alarmed me and induced me to awake him at once. No sooner had I done this than, with a bright smile irradiating all his features, he fell back upon his pillow and expired. I noticed that in less than a minute afterward his corpse had all the stern rigidity of stone, his brow was of the coldness of ice. Thus, ordinarily, should it have appeared only after long pressure from Asriel's hand. Had the sleep-waker, indeed, during the latter portion of his discourse, been addressing me from out the region of the shadows? End of Mesmeric Revelation Recording by Nick Number The Facts in the Case of M. Valdemar by Edgar Allan Poe of course, I shall not pretend to consider it any matter for wonder that the extraordinary case of M. Valdemar has excited discussion. It would have been a miracle had it not, especially under the circumstances. Though the desire of all parties concerned to keep the affair from the public, at least for the present, or until we had further opportunities for investigation, through our endeavors to effect this, a garbled or exaggerated account, made its way into society and became the source of many unpleasant misrepresentations and, very naturally, of a great deal of disbelief. It is now rendered necessary that I give the facts as far as I can comprehend them myself. They are succinctly these. My attention for the last three years had been repeatedly drawn to the subject of mesmerism, and about nine months ago, it occurred to me quite suddenly that in this series of experiments made hitherto, there had been a very remarkable and most unaccountable omission. No person had, as yet, been mesmerized in articulo mortis. It remained to be seen, first, whether, in such a condition, there existed in the patient any susceptibility to the magnetic influence. Secondly, whether, if any existed, it was impaired or increased by the condition. Thirdly, to what extent, or for how long a period, the encroachments of death might be arrested by the process. There were other points to be ascertained, but these most excited my curiosity. The last and especial, from the immensely important character of its consequences. In looking around me for some subject, by whose means I might test these particulars, I was brought to think of my friend, M. Ernest Valdemar, the well-known compiler of the Bibliotheca Forensica, and author, under the nom de plume, Isaacar Marx, of the Polish version of Wallenstein and Gargantua. M. Valdemar, who has resided principally in Harlem, N.Y., since the year 1839, is, or was, particularly noticeable for the extreme spareness of his person, his lower limbs much resembling those of John Randolph, and also for the whiteness of his whiskers, in violent contrast to the blackness of his hair, the latter, in consequence, being very generally mistaken for a wig. His temperament was markedly nervous, and rendered him a good subject for mesmeric experiment. 
On two or three occasions, I had put him to sleep with little difficulty, but was disappointed in other results which his peculiar constitution had naturally led me to anticipate. His will was at no period positively or thoroughly under my control. And in regard to clairvoyance, I could accomplish with him nothing to be relied upon. I always attributed my failure at these points to the undiscovered state of his health. For some months previous to my becoming acquainted with him, his physicians had declared him in a confirmed thesis. It was his custom, indeed, to speak calmly of his approaching disillusion, as of a matter neither to be avoided nor regretted. When the ideas to which I have alluded first occurred to me, it was, of course, very natural that I should think of M. Valdemar. I knew the steady philosophy of the man too well to apprehend any scruples from him, and he had no relatives in America who would be likely to interfere. I spoke to him frankly upon the subject, and, to my surprise, his interest seemed vividly excited. I say to my surprise, for, although he had always yielded his person freely to my experiments, he had never before given me any tokens of sympathy with what I did. His disease was of that character which would admit of exact calculation in respect to the epoch of its termination in death and it was finally arranged between us that he would send for me about 24 hours before the period announced by his physicians as that of his decease. It is now rather more than seven months since I received from M. Valdemar himself the subjoined note. My dear P, you may as well come now. D and F are agreed that I cannot hold out beyond tomorrow midnight, and I think they have hit the time very nearly. Valdemar. I received this note within half an hour after it was written, and in fifteen minutes more, I was in the dying man's chamber. I had not seen him for ten days, and was appalled at the fearful alteration which the brief interval had wrought in him. His face wore a leaden hue, the eyes were utterly lustrous, and the emaciation was so extreme that the skin had been broken through by the cheekbones. His expectoration was excessive. The pulse was barely perceptible. He retained, nevertheless, in a very remarkable manner, both his mental power and a certain degree of physical strength. He spoke with distinctness, took some palliative medicines without aid, and, when I entered the room, was occupied in penciling memoranda in a pocketbook. He was propped up in bed by pillows. Doctors D and F were in attendance. After pressing Valdemar's hand, I took these gentlemen aside and obtained from them a minute account of the patient's condition. The left lung had been, for 18 months, in a semi-osseous or cartilaginous state and was, of course, utterly useless for the purpose of vitality. The right in its upper portion was also partially, if not thoroughly, ossified, while the lower region was merely a mass of purulent turbicles running one into another. Several extensive perforations existed, and at one point, permanent adhesion to the ribs had taken place. These appearances in the right lobe were of comparatively recent date. The ossification had proceeded with very unusual rapidity. No sign of it had been discovered a month before, and the adhesion had only been observed during the three previous days. Independently of the pathesis, the patient was suspected of aneurysm of the aorta, 
but on this point the osseous symptoms rendered an exact diagnosis impossible. It was the opinion of both physicians that M. Valdemar would die about midnight on the following morrow, Sunday. It was then seven o'clock on Saturday evening. On quitting the invalid's bedside to hold conversation with myself, doctors D and F had bidden him a final farewell. It had not been their intention to return, but at my request, they agreed to look in upon the patient about 10 the next night. When they had gone, I spoke freely with Mr. Valdemar on the subject of his approaching disillusion, as well as, more particularly, of the experiment proposed. He still professed himself quite willing and even anxious to have it made, and urged me to commence it at once. A male and female nurse were in attendance, but I did not feel myself altogether at liberty to engage in a task of this character with no more reliable witnesses than these people, in the case of sudden accident, might prove. I therefore postponed operations until about eight the next night, when the arrival of a medical student with whom I had some acquaintance, Mr. Theodore L., relieved me from further embarrassment. It had been my design originally to wait for the physicians, but I was induced to proceed first by the urgent entreaties of M. Valdemar, and secondly by my conviction that I had not a moment to lose, as he was evidently sinking fast. Mr. L. was so kind to accede to my desire that he would take notes of all that occurred, and it is from his memoranda that what I have now to relate is, for the most part, either condensed or copied verbatim. It wanted about five minutes of eight when taking a patient's hand I begged him to state as distinctly as he could to Mr. L whether he, Mr. Valdemar, was entirely willing that I should make the experiment of mesmerizing him in his then condition. He replied feebly, and yet quite audibly, yes, I wish to be mesmerized, adding immediately afterwards, I fear you have deferred it too long. When he spoke thus, I commenced the passes which I had already found most effectual in subduing him. He was evidently influenced with the first lateral stroke of my hand across his forehead, but although I exerted all of my powers, no further perceptible effect was induced until some minutes after 10 o'clock, when doctors D and F called, according to the appointment. I explained to them in a few words what I designed, and as they opposed no objection, saying that the patient was already in the death agony, I proceeded without hesitation, exchanging, however, the lateral passes for downward ones, and directing my gaze entirely into the right eye of the sufferer. By this time his pulse was imperceptible, and his breathing was stertorous, and at intervals of half a minute. This condition was nearly unaltered for a quarter of an hour. At the expiration of this period, however, a natural, although very deep sigh, escaped the bosom of the dying man, and the stertorous breathing ceased. That is to say, its stertuousness was no longer apparent. The intervals were undiminished. The patient's extremities were of an icy coldness. At five minutes before 11, I perceived unequivocal signs of the mesmeric influence. The glassy roll of the eye was changed for that expression of uneasy inward examination, which is never seen except in cases of sleepwalking, and which is quite impossible to mistake. With a few rapid lateral passes, I made the lids quiver, as in incipient sleep, 
and with a few more I closed them altogether. I was not satisfied, however, with this, but continued manipulations vigorously, and with the fullest exertion of will, until I had completely stiffened the limbs of the slumberer, after placing them in a seemingly easy position. The legs were at full length, the arms were nearly so, and reposed on the bed at a moderate distance from the loins. The head was very slightly elevated. When I had accomplished this, it was fully midnight, and I requested the gentlemen present to examine in Valdemar's condition. After a few experiments, they admitted him to be in an unusually perfect state of mesmeric trance. The curiosity of both the physicians was greatly excited. Dr. D resolved at once to remain with the patient all night, while Dr. F took leave with a promise to return at daybreak. Mr. L and the nurses remained. We left M. Valdemar entirely undisturbed until about three o'clock in the morning, when I approached him and found him in precisely the same condition as when Dr. F went away. That is to say, he lay in the same position. The pulse was imperceptible. The breathing was gentle, scarcely noticeable, unless through the application of a mirror to the lips. The eyes were closed naturally, and the limbs were as rigid and cold as marble. Still, the general appearance was certainly not that of death. As I approached M. Valdemar, I made a kind of half-effort to influence his right arm into pursuit of my own, as I passed the latter gently to and fro above his person. In such experiments with this patient, I had never perfectly succeeded before, and assuredly, I had little thought of succeeding now. But to my astonishment, his arm very readily, although feebly, followed every direction I assigned it with mine. I determined to hazard a few words of conversation. In Valdemar, I said, are you asleep? He made no answer, but I perceived a tremor about the lips and was thus induced to repeat the question again and again. At its third repetition, his whole frame was agitated by a very slight shivering. The eyelids unclosed themselves so far as to display a white line of the ball. The lips moved sluggishly, and from between them, in a barely audible whisper, issued the words, Yes, asleep now. Do not wake me. Let me die so. I here felt the limbs and found them as rigid as ever. The right arm, as before, occupied the direction of my hands. I questioned the sleep waker again. Do you still feel pain in the breast, in Valdemar? The answer now was immediate, but even less audible than before. No pain. I am dying. I did not think it advisable to disturb him further just then, and nothing more was said or done until the arrival of Dr. F., who came a little before sunrise and expressed unabounded astonishment at finding the patient still alive. After feeling the pulse and applying a mirror to the lips, he requested me to speak to the sleep waker again. I did so, saying, M. Valdemar, do you still sleep? As before, some minutes elapsed ere a reply was made, and during the interval, the dying man seemed to be collecting his energies to speak. At my fourth repetition of the question, he said very faintly, almost inaudibly, Yes, still asleep, dying. 
It was now the opinion, or rather the wish, of the physicians that M. Voldemar should be suffered to remain undisturbed in his present apparently tranquil condition until death should supervene. And this, it was generally agreed, must now take place within a few minutes. I concluded, however, to speak to him once more and merely repeated my previous question. While I spoke, there came a marked change over the countenance of the sleep waker. The eyes rolled themselves slowly open, the pupils disappearing upwardly. The skin generally assumed a cadaverous hue, resembling not so much parchment as white paper, and the circular hectic spots which hitherto had been strongly defined in the center of each cheek went out at once. I use this expression because the suddenness of their departure put me in a mind of nothing so much as the extinguishment of a candle by a puff of the breath. The upper lip, at the same time, writhed itself away from the teeth, which it had previously covered completely, while the lower jaw fell with an audible jerk, leaving the mouth widely extended, and it disclosing in full view the swollen and blackened tongue. I presume that no member of the party then present had been unaccustomed to deathbed horrors, but so hideous beyond conception was the appearance of M. Valdemar at this moment that there was a general shrinking back from the region of the bed. I feel that I have reached a point of this narrative at which every reader will be startled into positive disbelief. It is my business, however, simply to proceed. There was no longer the faintest sign of vitality in M. Valdemar, and concluding him to be dead, we were consigning him to the charge of the nurses when a very strong vibratory motion was observable in the tongue. This continued perhaps for a minute. At the expiration of this period, there issued from him such a distended and motionless jaws, a voice, such as it would be madness in me to attempt describing. There are indeed two or three epithets which might be considered as applicable to it in part, I might say. For example, that the sound was harsh and broken and hollow, but the hideous whole is indescribable for the simple reason that no similar sounds have ever jarred upon the ear of humanity. There were two particulars, nevertheless, which I thought then, and still think, might fairly be stated as characteristic of the intonation as well adapted to convey some idea of its unearthly peculiarity. In the first place, the voice seemed to reach our ears, at least mine, from a vast distance, or from some deep cavern within the earth. In the second, it impressed me, I fear indeed that it would be impossible to make myself comprehended, as gelatinous or glutinous matters impress the sense of touch. I have spoken both of sound and of voice. I mean to say that the sound was one of distinct, of even wonderfully, thrillingly distinct, syllabification. M. Valdemar spoke, obviously in reply to the question I had propounded to him a few minutes before. I had asked him, it will be remembered, if he still slept. He now said, yes, no, I have been sleeping. And now, now, I am dead. No person present even affected to deny or attempt to repress the unutterable shuddering horror which these few words thus uttered were so well calculated to convey. 
Mr. L, the student, swooned. The nurses immediately left the chamber and could not be induced to return. My own impression I would not pretend to render intelligible to the reader. For nearly an hour, we busied ourselves silently, without the utterance of a word, in endeavors to retrieve Mr. L. When he came to himself, we addressed ourselves again to an investigation of M. Valdemar's condition. It remained in all respects as I have last described it, with the exception that the mirror no longer afforded evidence of respiration. An attempt to draw blood from the arm failed. I should mention, too, that this limb was no further subject to my will. I endeavored in vain to make it follow the direction of my hand. The only real indication, indeed, of the mesmeric influence was now found in the vibratory movement of the tongue whenever I addressed Mr. Valdemar a question. He seemed to be making an effort to reply, but no longer had sufficient volition. To queries put to him by any other persons than myself, he seemed utterly insensible, although I endeavored to place each member of the company in a mesmeric report with him. I believe that I have now related all that is necessary to an understanding of the sleepwalker's state at this epoch. Other nurses were procured, and at 10 o'clock I left the house with the company of two physicians and Mr. L. In the afternoon, we all called again to see the patient. His condition remained precisely the same. We had now some discussion as to the propriety and feasibility of awakening him, but we had little difficulty in agreeing that no good purpose would be survived by doing. It was evident that, so far, death, or what was usually termed death, had been arrested by the mesmeric process. It seemed clear to us all that to awaken M. Valdemar would merely be to ensure his instant, or at least his speedy, dissolution. From the period until the close of the last week, an interval of nearly seven months, we continued to make daily calls at M. Valdemar's house, accompanied now and then by medical and other friends. All this time, the sleep waker remained exactly as I have last described him. The nurse's attentions were continual. It was on Friday last that we finally resolved to make an experiment of awakening, or at least attempting to awaken him. And it is the perhaps unfortunate result of the latter experiment which has given rise to so much discussion in private circles, to so much of what I cannot help thinking, unwarranted popular feeling. For the purpose of revealing M. Valdemar from the mesmeric trance, I made use of the customary passes. These were for a time unsuccessful. The first indication of revival was afforded by a partial descent of the iris. It was observed as especially remarkable that this lowering of the pupil was accompanied by the profuse outflowing of a yellowish ichor from beneath the lids of a pungent and highly offensive odor. It is now suggested that I should attempt to influence the patient's arm as heretofore. I made the attempt and failed. Dr. F. then intimated a desire to have me put a question. I did so as follows.
In Valdemar, can you explain to us what are your feelings or wishes now? There was an instant return of the hectic circles on the cheeks. The tongue quivered, or rather rolled violently in the mouth, although the jaws and lips remained rigid as before. And at length, the same hideous voice, which I have already described, broke forth. For God's sake, quick, quick, put me to sleep. Or quick, waken me, quick, I say to you that I am dead. I was thoroughly unnerved, and for an instant remained undecided what to do. At first I made an endeavor to recompose the patient, but, failing in this through total abeyance of the will, I retraced my steps and as earnestly struggled to awaken him. In this attempt, I soon saw that I should be successful. Or at least, I soon fancied that my success would be complete. And I am sure that all in the room were prepared to see the patient awaken. For what really occurred, however, it is quite impossible that any human being could have been prepared. As I rapidly made the mesmeric passes amid ejaculations of dead, dead, absolutely bursting from the tongue and not from the lips of the sufferer, his whole frame at once within the space of a single minute or less shrunk, crumbled, absolutely rotted away beneath my hands. Upon the bed before the whole company, there lay a nearly liquid mass of loathsome, of detestable putrescence. End of The Facts and the Case of M. Valdemar by Edgar Allan Poe.